Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show with me, Mark Lewis. Uh, regular listeners will already realise that this is my first time presenting the show. You won't recognise my voice, so hello, I'm very glad to be here. Um, before I introduce you to our guests, I'll quickly mention that we have a special subscription offer for listeners to the talk show. Uh, subscribe to the printed edition of Art Monthly at artmonthly.co.uk forward slash resonance offer and receive a complimentary digital subscription with free access to our entire back catalogue. Um, with me today are two writers and one writing duo, all of whom have articles in the June issue of the magazine. Matthew Bowman is a lecturer at the University of Suffolk and the Colchester School of Art and has written a review of Corey Archangel's exhibition, Back Off, on until the 7th of July at First Sight in Colchester. Hello, Matthew. Good evening. <laughs> um, Maya and Ruben Folks are co-directors of Translocal Institute and founders of the Post-Socialist Art Centre, UCL. Maya and Ruben have written a review of an exhibition entitled Southern Constellations, The Poetics of the Non-Aligned, which is taking place until the 10th of September at the Moderna Galleria and Museum of Contemporary Art, Metalkova, in Ljubljana, Slovenia. Hello, Maya. Hi. And hello, Ruben. Hello. hello. <laughs> um, first, though, we're going to be talking to Tom Snow, uh, who's recently completed his PhD in History of Art at UCL. Tom, you've written a feature-length piece entitled Activism and Art, in which you detail a number of activist interventions against corporate sponsorship of public institutions, such as the Tate and the British Museum here in London. Um, you ask a number of really interesting questions and raise a lot of really interesting problems in the piece. Could you just like just give us an introduction to um, your motivations for writing it and maybe just talk us through some of the examples of corporate sponsorship mm -hmm. and some of the interve intervention uh, action you cite. Sure, yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, part, of, um, part of the way I kind of thought about writing the piece was from a perspective that wanted to discuss the work, the creative labour of activists as art, mm. um, especially in a situation whereby places like Tate have uh, kind of refused to credit these mm. groups as, as, as kind of having anything to do with... Um, the types of objects that are exhibited in spaces. Um, and Liberate Tate are a really great example of that. Um, there, there are a number of other situations that I um, could have mentioned, whether you want to call them performances, interventions, whatever they are, um, in the uh, that I didn't mention in the text. But, you know, even things like when they, when they attempted to donate the propeller mm. to um, the uh, wind turbine, renewable energy propeller to mm. um, um, to, the, to the collection they mm. went through you know signing the paperwork and everything like this mm. um, you know and this is this is this is donating it to a gallery who whose a lot of collection is built around figures like Marcel Duchamp who mm. said you know he wanted he thought about giving up art because who could make any object more beautiful than the aeroplane propeller right. so these are clever these are clever interventions these are very well mm. thought through um and they are you know they're playing with art history they're playful they're mischievous mischievous but they're also you know um um serious activities with serious meanings and have we would think i would like to think serious consequences for places like the tate modern and how they consider um Art, um, the, con the concerns and discourses that artists engage in. Yeah, so I guess before we before we ask these questions about how and uh, like 
how that might be acted out, how an institution might assimilate activism as art, just to like maybe to maybe detail some of the corporate sponsorship specifically and like character ways that characterize if you could try and characterize the way that corporations seek to kind of cleanse their public image mm. through these through these like deals with with the Tate and whether that's just like um just to do with an image thing or whether actually it's like a soft power thing that get, it gets them into rooms with people they might not be in rooms with otherwise it's yeah it's corporate cultural diplomacy yeah. absolutely it's it's about you know it's it, it's about finessing a public yeah. image yeah. um so that you know you know so, so that corporations that historically and at present have huge economic stakes in um you know um practices of extraction from fossil fuels to shipping uh, these things across the world um there are huge stakes within kind of um appearing you know to sponsor critique in mm. you know what Hito Shidaro famously called the museum the institution of critique um to be sponsoring critique so that they look like part of the solution mm. rather than part of the problem or or kind of a major component of the problem mm. um so it, re- it really is yeah like you say it's a soft politics it's a it's a it's a cultural diplomacy with a domestic audi- audience in mind mm. yeah and maybe like just so that the listeners can kind of understand a bit more about liberate Tate and cuz I actually found out um, I just found out recently that Liberate Tate actually came out of an activist workshop run by the Tate. That's right, yeah. Um, and just like just what their what their agenda is, in, or and, and like maybe a few more of their performances in terms of or maybe the um, human cost piece. If if I don't know if you could just describe that and the significance of that within your piece and. So the other significance of these very performative interventions, mm. um, so Human Cost is um, a very performative piece where a crude oil-like substance is poured over a body. Mm. In, I think it was in the Duvine galleries in, in, in Tate, Britain. And again, this is a very interesting creative negotiation of these spaces. Tate is really... And this isn't just trying to mindlessly engage in Tate bashing because the, kind of, the, the point of the piece is to, is to, is to have Tate on side, actually, acknowledging that the you know the characters artists workers who people those spaces we who go and see um these works more or less you know are very conscious of 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 environmental damage that people like bp hyundai even bloomberg to a degree their corporate sponsors are participating in but tate you know as an institution the turbine hall the duveen galleries these are big spaces that have led the way in 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 you know contemporary arts architecture changing how contemporary art is produced these are spaces that invite performative actions you know whether it's um you know the tanya baguera's recent piece or the other pieces she's done in the turbine hall you know superflex's work which you know was extremely problematic but 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 that you know when they installed the swings and claimed that this was some radical anti-capitalist gesture is it's really problematic obviously mm. um but it does show us that there is a desire on Tate whether it's legitimate or not on behalf of Tate to 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 be engaged with activist politics so the fact that liberate Tate etc are coming in and staging these unauthorized performances is also responding to that change in the in what we think about contemporary art to be mm. so they're, again they're responding to the architectural components of Tate as much as its influence in shifting the kind of products that contemporary mm. artists make okay yeah and 
so something you something you kind of expand on throughout the article and I think that's a really important um question that you start to delve into is the connection between corporate patronage and like neocolonial practice. Mm-hmm. Um you kind of you kind of deepen that through his history and you look at the formation of Tate itself mm-hmm. um and the legacy of that and the, the history of that. Maybe you could just like just explain that. So um, yeah, so Tate um Tate is obviously uh was a uh, a company that um well still is a company that um um works within the sugar industry mm. so benefited hugely um from um sugar plantations in the caribbean and elsewhere and um and and, and you know the, the this is this this is what their brand is built on you know this this history you know um that has facilitated a tremendous amount of wealth. Then that wealth translated into an art collection, and then the art collection gets donated to the nation. So, so it becomes a public museum. So it becomes a, becomes a uh, you know a, a project or an institution of, of public representation mm-hmm. and public interest. For me, I, I think that there's no reason not to delve into those histories. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be to demonise every single figure that has anything ever to do with it. But it, but it's about being honest about what are the roots of these of these situations. And you, yeah, and you use the example of um, well, during the Windrush scandal um, recently, the, the the commission, I think, or at least installation of the unfinished conversation. Yeah, by John, by John Comfort, Comfort. Yeah, which maybe, is a different issue. But yeah. but maybe well, it's it, it, as far as I understand your article, you're kind of you're kind of citing that as an example of of these institutions trying to at least rethink colonial histories. Or perhaps. artists that are doing artists, it from within. Certainly, but yeah. institutions kind of at least exhibiting that work, I suppose. Or, yeah, absolutely, it, which is maybe, important. Yeah, and maybe, maybe maybe we could just like, maybe you could describe that artwork and how, and how you think it fits into that that attempt well, on the we, part of the institution to maybe rethink these histories a bit or address sh- them. Sure, mm. so one of the connections there really is, you know, w- with the denial of colonial history which is massive in the public sphere mm. at the moment with you know the kind of brexit debacle etc um, but also people like boris johnson really using the language of colonialism to to try and describe the position of the united kingdom compared to the european union he says mm. that the uk are going to become a colony of the european union which is which is you know which is really insulting um to um well, anybody really that's got stakes in the colonial past, which is effectively all of us. Um, but with with that kind of denial of colonial history becomes, uh, you know, there's a denial of, of, of the way that the, you know, UK were built. Um, so one of the other things that's happening in the Brexit debate, for example, is a demonisation of migration. Mm. And what John O'Confer's work does really beautifully is, is, you know, foregrounds migration as a paradigm of modernity, not just a byproduct Really, it foregrounds it as being um, as a movement of people as being key mm. to, to 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 modernity, um, and I think that that's really important because that really is against the grain of the kind of things that are said in the public sphere. You know, like I say in the article, the quality of conversation that is happening. You know, mm. the paradox being, we have more and more, we apparently have more and more access to information at our fingertips, but that's not actually really improved the quality of debate mm. from from our politicians who are also representative of the public and the nation mm. yeah and no, the, the question of migration 
something we'll come to as well with Myron Rubin. Um, but another, well, another kind of example you, you talk about in the piece is the, the case of the Hope to Nope graphics and politics exhibition at the Design Museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is like a, this is kind of a glaring example, I suppose, of an example of institutions just showing that they they haven't taken care in terms of looking at the politics of the work they're showing yeah thinking about how that matches up with their politics it's the most with, it's, with, yeah sorry yeah it's it's yeah it's the most obscene example of an institution commoditizing artworks yeah you know, ripping them from their actual histories and yeah and, and not really caring what discourses they're engaged um the designer who i mentioned charlie waterhouse was really useful um, i saw him speak at an event that was um put on to discuss those situations and I exchanged some emails with him and he was really helpful in discussing some of the issues related to that. But again, this is an example, you know, I I, I want to emphasise that, you know, at a certain level, the hands of power don't really care in the commoditization of art objects or whatever, but there is a desire to be affiliated with those sorts of histories, Um, Mm. although actually not in the case of the Design Museum because their response was after all the artists removed their works was, well, we just won't deal with activists again. Yeah, and I saw that they made their, their exhibition free for the last two weeks. <laughs> yeah, because, great. <laughs> yeah, terrific. Yeah, not just for the Leonardo chaps, who yeah. are the weapons manufacturers, Yeah, maybe, maybe you could just, just explain that. So. so the situation was that so there was the exhibition about activism in the last, I think, 10 or 20 years, Liberate um, BP and Not BP artworks, Jeremy Deller, lots of different people. And the artists um, found out that there was an exhibition opening and, 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 and discovered that they weren't invited to it. So really pressed to get a um, an invitation. And when they showed up, it was corporate smoozing, trustees. Um, Peter Mandelson was there. And, you know, again, Charlie really described really well how at a certain point in the evening, Peter Mandelson just kind of rose up out of nowhere and and gave this speech that had nothing to do with um, the works in the exhibition and was just a platform that he took advantage of to basically slander Jeremy Corbyn. Um, You know, and again, I draw attention to the idea that, you know, this guy is is still operating at such a level of denial that he can't even come to terms with the fact that the 2003... Uh, Iraqi invasion, which was massively, um, which you know, had massive results, let's say, for BP and their capacity to access oil fields in Iraq. He still hasn't come to terms that that might have been a mistake. I mean, you know, may, I don't know. It's, it's 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 sometimes difficult to reconcile. Really, you kind of think is you know, is it just willful ignorance, or is he like you know, going to the exhibition with his eyes closed? What what you know, what is going on here? I mean, uh, yeah, I suppose. Um Jeremy Corbyn's position in Stop the War Coalition becomes significant as well. It's like it doesn't feel like, yeah, he doesn't feel like he's got his eyes closed. It feels deliberate. It feels yeah, yeah. cynical. Yeah, actually, certainly. yeah, and hypocritical. Yeah, um, yeah, um, and you know, the thing to say is that it's, this isn't just about activists. This is about you know, workers, artists, etc. That people these spaces. You know, I would be very, 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 very surprised to learn that. You know that there was a significant percentage of people working for Tate, for example, that would reg- would would agree with Peter Mandelson's p- position. Mm. So why not get on side with the people's position that you do agree with? Mm. 
Yeah, and this this is why these activities of Liberate Tate, BP or not BP, and countless other artists and activists are worth taking seriously and, and, and worth, in my to my mind, um, thinking about as um, having serious interests in arts history, but also in contemporary art production. Mm. Yeah, just before we just before we get try and get to the the heart of that question. Um, I wanted to talk to talk about uh, the Ice Watch London piece. Oh yeah, because this is uh, by Olafur Eliasson. Yeah, um, this is a really interesting example. Of the way or the way you kind of use it in your piece of again the Tate trying to. Well, I was going to say with the best will in the world, but perhaps not uh, trying to address like issues of climate change and you know the 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 fact that their partnership with BP undermines that, and but also the. The, the distinction you make between a direct experience of activism, perhaps, and mm. a kind of spectacularized experience of of this piece, which is well, I'll let you I'll let you describe it. But these ice blocks from uh, Greenland, I believe, from Iceland. Iceland. Uh, maybe it was Greenland. Um, yeah. So um, yeah. you know, like uh, Olaf Eliasson is. You know, I, I hope it doesn't come across too much in the in the text that I'm just kind of again, like kind of bashing his work well, I think, for, for, I think, for no reason. I, mm. I try to be fair. Mm. Um, you know, and he, he's an example of an artist who, you know, maybe you could use him as an artist who, like, you know, ideologically is on side, but, you it's, know, some of the artworks he does is kind of a little bit... Um, don't really get to the mm. get to the nuts and bolts of the issue, really. And 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 this is a good example. But, but the way I wanted to write about his, you know, installation of, um, I think, about 16 blocks of ice... Like you say, from Iceland, uh, so from, from 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 Greenland, was intended to um, allow visitors to the Tate. They were outside, um, allow visitors to the Tate the direct experience of like centuries old ice, which which may be a beautiful experience, mm. um, and it may mean different things to different people. But again, it's it's the, the issue is with the framing. The mm. frame of Tate, a discursive frame of Tate, within mm. their own history, it doesn't look like the radical action that the accompanying text panels and press releases otherwise claim it to be. And yeah, and you talk about the, the numerous blind spots within the within the kind of conception of the work, such as the fact that the environmental degradation. I think, well, I quote you say unaddressed with the roots of environmental degradation in the very formation of capitalism. So mm. it's kind of there's a lot of blind spots. There's a lot of things which aren't being addressed. Absolutely, which yeah. are inconvenient, perhaps. And it doesn't yeah. the work the work the work as a standalone piece doesn't 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 really necessarily facilitate the opportunity to do that to do that. But it might be a work that could um, open up questions to in collaboration with other artists' work, for example, that haven't been shown in the Tate, um, or other kinds of working, other research projects. You know, the other thing to say is that you know part of the history of the Tate and its contribution to contemporary art is that they, alongside biennials, want to participate with, you know, the professional artist, the semi-professional artist mm. and the non-artist. And that, has, that, that, that is reflected in, in what art looks like. Mm. So why can't there be, why, can't, why couldn't, uh, maybe, maybe it will, let's hope it does, but why couldn't Olaf Eliasson's work be the beginning of a, of a, of a research project, let's say, to, to address these um, histories that, if they are not addressed, appear otherwise covered up? Mm. And 
so so it, it feels like perhaps the 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 unwillingness to accept activist gestures i mean particularly the example of the gif which you touched on right at the beginning mm-hmm. um which was so liberate attempted to bring this well they did bring this wind turbine blade into the into the turbine hall yeah um and we're kind of saying here's a gift for your, yeah. co- for your collection well because um, because you know also the other thing to say is that you know significant big artists can gift works a donation yeah. you know so it's yeah. it's also playing on that kind of idea yeah but it, of course it raises like like take gifted their collection to the nation yeah 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 um so it raises the question of like assimilation um absolutely and and how i guess a, a question i feel like you raise and i'm not perhaps perhaps there's not one we can answer here but like how how can we assimilate radical gestures or ra- how can we exactly assimilation we, not appropriation yeah but without kind of neutering them perhaps or like neutralizing the or t- taking away what makes it good or what makes it a direct experience well or, th- yeah this is part of the point isn't it that that, yeah. that there is no there is no single answer that yeah. these are complex que- questions with with really complex and uh, diverse and uh, you know multivalent answers really mm. uh, so the point the point one of the things i'm trying to get at is that that is that you know seeing seeing these 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 activities as 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 artworks validating them as artworks or whatever would be one step in a redirect in the right direction yeah. towards confronting um these kind of histories you know that the, the, the wind turbine blade made it into the performance space the turbine holes and then it's been taken away i looked for it on the um on the Tate archive to see if it had been listed as one of an artwork and it's not um i well i read that they had a they decided not to accept the gift is that, well, they definitely took it away. Yeah, um, um, they have it. In, I thought they had it in storage somewhere, but I, I, I might be wrong about that. Yeah. But you know, if douche, you know, like there might be an interesting, or maybe a little bit too cheesy, but an interesting history to be written about. You know, Tate's contribution to white sugar cubes and the white mm. cubes, and the, the blade. You know, made it into the turbine hole, the performance space, but didn't make it into the white cube. And actually, that kind of gesture of, of, of actually placing activism in 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 dialogue confrontation whatever word you want to use with the white cube that is otherwise you know quote unquote authenticated artworks that are otherwise not thought about as artworks again like duchamp's um airplane blade is, is 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 an interesting history to think about and 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 that work if if that was to come into the collection it would by no means give us by no means give us all the answers that we want but it would definitely give us a a, a useful platform in which to keep on building these questions into two things you know what is Tate's history and how does that affect cultural and national representation and how can we think about the developments and advancements in contemporary art as a direct consequence of what contemporary artists are doing mm. But we need Tate on side to do that, arguably. Great. Okay. I think I've just got one eye on the time, but thank you so much, um, Tom. I think we're just going to move on to Maya and Ruben. Um, And I think there are a lot of um, kind of shared concerns between these two pieces, particularly to do with uh, how how we kind of decolonialize cultural and political institutions. Um, So you've, uh, you've seen... Um, an exhibition entitled Southern Constellations, The Poetics and the Unaligned um, Across Two Institutions in Ljubljana, Moderna Galleria, 
and Museum of Contemporary Art, Metalkova. Um, so this concerns um, a moment in history, I think in 1961, the formation of the Non-Aligned Movement. Um, and yeah, this exhibition is, it seems like taking a look at this moment in history is perhaps a precedent for how we might be able to address the current landscape. Um, maybe you could just like describe the exhibition, what you saw, and uh, place it in historical context, perhaps. Yeah, sure. Sure. So, I mean, it's uh, uh, this moment of the of the formation of the non-aligned movement is is the starting point. But the the exhibition doesn't really go so far as uh, as to really pro programmatically, you know, s suggest this as a as a solution or. Uh, uh, a, w a way forward for uh, contemporary art and politics, but some are really, really just. It, 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 I don't think it necessarily has such uh, uh, grandiose ambitions. Really, it, it, I mean, it, it approaches the non-aligned movement not just through its uh, its beginnings, the kind of the, his the history of it as a uh, a, a, a particular moment in uh, when uh, uh, of, of the division of the world between. You know the East and West of the Cold Cold War blocks, you know, which really solidified in the 1950s, and then in the in the early 60s, you have an attempt to define another space, a third way, a space between uh, the Western capitalist bloc and the and the Soviet Eastern bloc, and uh, uh, also to to connect with uh, countries in the what was then called the Third World, so in the in the Global South, to to find different uh, connections, and uh, it was you know it was it was that. That moment also brought up a lot of cultural connections, and people uh, explored ways of trying to uh, realize this idea of a third way, also through culture and through art. Mm. Uh, but I mean, the, the exhibition itself look, looks back to that uh, uh, historical moment. It, it tries to uh, excavate that historical moment and, and examine all the, um, the the real diversity and various ways in which uh, uh, art and culture was thrown up by that situation of, of non-alignment and also at the same time also inviting contemporary artists to to reflect on that as well but it has quite a light touch i think mm. overall the exhibition it, it doesn't really uh try to really push this very hard as a as a as a real alternative today it sort of really just invites this very open-ended mm. exhibition a kind of research exhibition which presents the material and uh, really, uh, you know, allows the the viewer, the visitor, to draw their own conclusions from this really varied material. Mm. And the institution is also the Moderna Galleria is uh, has interesting histories, both within the histories of uh, non-alignment art mm. exhibitions and the more contemporary histories of the institution. We heard a lot about Tate, and this is one of these very interesting national art institutions, which is very daring and courageous in taking some of the uh, more difficult issues and dealing with it. And uh, in the recent history of independent Slovenia, it was the um, gallery which turned east rather than west in the 90s that did funny mm. shows such as uh, the seven sins of the East European art, which is like stereotyping East European artists and uh, collaborating with the Moscow and uh, mm. Russian scene straight after the fall of communism. So it had this history also staging very important exhibitions. Uh, such uh, body in the east and the performance art and and uh, so he had this uh, quite radical uh, exhibition history under the same directorship of uh, Zdenka Badovinets and uh, this is one of these shows which followed that line of uh, mm. questioning the national legacies and the Yugoslav legacies of of Slovenia as well 
And uh, it's interesting the way they also look at their own uh, history of, uh, of involvement with the non-aligned movement because uh, uh, in the, already in the 50s they started with the graphic biennial in Ljubljana which was hosted by Moderna Galeria and then uh, when the non-alignment movement was fa- founded in the 60s they also had some representations of these countries from the south. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were always exhibited, you know, as it turns out with this, with this exhibition, you find out that although there was this kind of presence of the artists from the South, from African Asia and South America, they were always based somewhere in the basement or like non-representational rooms and the uh, mm. main spaces were devoted to the arts from the West. And y- yeah, and you kind of, you kind of, it feels like you're kind of saying that this exhibition is perhaps like consciously aware of, of course, like, incorporating um nam countries non-aligned countries but in a way that's like trying to usurp that colonial kind of Mm. curatorial um and how how does it how does it go about doing that how does the curator going about go about doing that i mean it's partly through the selection of works Mm. so i mean they really just uh found a lot of these works uh for example the works from the uh uh uh, Ljubljana graphics biennial. They they had a look in in their in in their stores and they found the works that had won uh, prizes. So the works that had won prizes were were kept by the institution or bought by the institution, and then they they chose uh, works from countries from the non-aligned movements mm. and just you know exhibited them in the in the space. So in a way, if, uh, I think that they didn't sort of. Uh, necessarily apply too many kind of like aesthetic criteria in the choice of different works but it was really about just exhibiting them because they were works that uh, uh, you know came about and arose in the context of the non-aligned movement mm. rather than saying that you know they don't pretend that there is such a thing as non-aligned movement art they're mm. not they're not trying to uh, uh, you know create some some new movement as non-aligned movement art but rather just to to show that it, that it existed and and somehow uh, as it's a way of st- a starting point for a, a conversation about what was happening around this possibility of taking another position uh within the cold war that wasn't uh, based on you know which was also affected art you know wasn't based on the dominance of of certain forms of abstraction and modernism on one side or you know, especially for the early period, socialist realism on the other. So, it was uh, how how did artists who were uh, living and working through these new, this alternative circuits of the of the non-aligned movement? How did they relate to the different uh, uh, pulls and attractions of the of these different aesthetic poles? Mm. And they also have a section devoted to the only uh, gallery which was founded as a non-alignment gallery in Montenegro. And that was in, already in the 80s when everything was already decaying and going into different uh, uh, directions. And Tito was already dead and, and uh, it didn't really work as a... So this is the Joseph... Yes, and so they also exhibited some of the works which were donated to that uh, museum or the gallery of non-aligned movement. And that's that's kind of that's kind of that failed that gallery. The gallery failed uh, in the sense that it couldn't really uh, represent what it wanted to represent the art of non-alignment because it's such a disparate. Nebulous it was already so late. It was twenty years after the movement was founded, and at that time, you know the the uh, political situation across the world changed so dramatically that 
some of the so things. Tito himself had died in 1980, and you know things were really falling apart already in mm. in, in Yugoslavia. And the the Third Line movement, which I mean, as 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 uh, one of the uh, you know uh, uh, Nahim Mahajamin's film, but uh, uh, put, put, you know put, point points out you know the 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 the, the, uh, uh, the, the non-aligned movement went through a real crisis in the mm. 70s, and that was a, a film which was also. Uh, uh, could be seen here here in London at the uh, in, in the in Tate at the turn, at last year's Turner Prize. So uh, you know, which was was really it was a really interesting place to see that film again in the exhibition in this very very deep dense context around non-alignment to see to see that film uh, presented and it's a film which really points to this pivotal moment when non-alignment is a very progressive modernizing liberating force collides with the realities of the of, of the rising oil price and this rise of of of, of uh, power blocks based on uh, uh, owning oil which is also a connection with the tate in a way mm. with the liberate tate sort of around carbon and oil and also of around uh, the is, uh, islamic block as well in the 70s so i mean in a way it was after that whole moment to suddenly start trying to build up a a gallery of uh, non-aligned art in the 80s it was a little bit came a bit too late really mm. yeah and another another work you talk about um in this exhibition which perhaps illustrates those kind of failures or the kind of um the neoliberal search for profit maybe compromising the non-aligned movement and some of its politics is the the work by Dubravka Sekulic the mm. the um, Enigo project Enigo. Yeah. um yeah maybe you could just talk about that work and yeah, I mean that 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 work is uh, 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 interesting in in sort of bring, bringing to light the, the some of the other motivations for uh, uh, setting up and uh, being involved in the, the non-aligned movement for for Yugoslavia. So you know, uh, on the one hand, it was it was very idealistic, thinking that there was this third way. On the other hand, it gave them uh, an angle geopolitically and economically how to compete with mm. other. Uh, you know, in 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 new, the new markets that were opening up uh, around the world. So it, I think it's it's quite an interesting work in in the way it uh, uh, really visualizes the the role that these um, uh, construction companies had in in uh, uh, you know building new representat- representative buildings, opera houses, parliaments, also industrial centres, hospitals all around the world in, in non-aligned countries over, you know, in the 60s and 70s. So it shows that, uh, you know, the Yugoslav state actually did get quite quite a lot of uh, uh, material benefits. And if you like, also, that also has a, a little bit of a, uh, a Eurocentric or colonial, neo-colonial dimension, you could argue, too. And But she also, with that work, she really shows the... Uh, the uh, the journey that that company also goes on from at least espousing these ideas of uh, uh, internationalist solidarity with the third world in the in the 60s to really rebranding itself as a uh, uh, as a real normal capitalist corporation by the by the 80s. Yeah, so that so that works called the sun never sets mm. on Enigo Enigo project mm. until it does. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's a good title. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so it feels like there's a, I don't, a, a question of like this exhibition being held now and how, like like you say, it's not proposing any grand grandiose kind of 
solutions or anything, but um, it does feel like in your article there's a sense that it's it's relevant that it is being held now, mm. and perhaps it's I think you use the word reignite, kind of trying to reignite the promise of this movement. Mm. Um, I, I think it's also part of the interest in revisiting the histories of Yugoslavia as a country which ceased to exist 30 years ago. It's kind of anniversary yeah. coming up, and uh, again, Modena Galeria was. Uh, just a year ago was restaging one of the last exhibitions held in Yugoslavia of contemporary art in Sarajevo Documenta, Sarajevo Documenta 1989 and it's already starting this kind of revision processes and uh, and there are several of such initiatives around the world also MoMA had a huge show of Yugoslav architecture and design from this period and it's, it's uh, building up a kind of interest in revisiting this um, Third way socialist countries' legacy, also cultural legacies, and uh, and this is this show is one of these contributions to to this very complex heritage, which was uh, which they do in a, in a very interesting way by like looking at the hist- history, but not but in a very critical way as well, and not just nostalgia, which is a very popular way of looking at the at the histories of Yugoslavia in in some parts. And this this is much more critical approach, is really thinking about decolonizing both the museum and the and the art histories of the region. And the, and for a long time there was no kind of sense that. Uh, East European country would any have would have any kind of histories which are not related beyond East and West, and only recently there have been more such um, explorations of the of the exchanges with the with the other countries around the world. And this is one of these uh, uh, research projects which tackles this kind of problems. And uh, mm. it's interesting that they also decide to open it up to contemporary artists and to invite them to also think how. You know, give voice to contemporary arts, uh, revisiting of that period, and some of the interesting works come not from these historic um, uh, sections, but from really from contemporary interventions as well. Mm. Yeah, like, yeah, I don't get the feeling that it's a a, a, um, utopian like exhibition that's saying we need to rekindle this um, this thinking, but it does. Well, you kind of. You, at the end of the piece, you discuss the the Aya Haydar uh, Kias series of embroidered. Are they are they embroidered Syrian um, plastic plastic bags? bags. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you say, I'll just quote. You say the act of expression of solidarity with the plight of the disadvantaged is the aspect of non-aligned contemporaneity that is most in need of rediscovery in the present geopolitical arena. So yeah, maybe just like expand on what you what you kind of meant by that. Because that, that's what the exhibition does. It really yeah. shows what, what is, you know, in a way they can address the state of affairs in an, because non-alignment movements still exist and alliance is still alive. Yeah. But it's just in a disarray of all kinds. And uh, perhaps one of the most tangible aspects of non-alignment is the, you know, economic migration and uh, and the refugee crisis, which is... Um, which, 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 from the point of view of the institution, it's, it's also quite interesting that... Uh, uh, in in that same space where you're, where the exhibition is, the the cafe is actually run by uh, Syrian migrants or whatever, who or a community of people, refugees really, who who are li- who are living in Ljubljana, and the few groups who, you know, it's, it's not that easy for uh, 
uh, refugees to uh, to settle also in, in different parts of Eastern Europe, but they live there and the, the museum gives them this space for community meetings. They run the, the restaurant there and... Uh, uh, you know, which it's, is in it, the bookshop. Which is in the bookshop. It's a very nice somehow gesture of solidarity, uh, which goes against also, you know, sort of populist streams against migrants, which are quite strong also in, in Eastern Europe. Europe I'm, yeah. I'm also in Slovenia as well, probably. So, I mean, in a way, it's, it's quite a nice gesture of solidarity, which shows that the museum is going beyond just, uh, you know, putting up an exhibition to express some ideas, we're actually trying to actually put it into to practice. To but practice that's not related well. to the exhibition. But it's not, it's not directly related, but it's interesting that it's there at the same time. Okay, it so it's just keeps a kind the, of... It yeah. keeps, in a way, it shows that that underlying sense of solidarity... Oh, institutional which, critique exists a bit yeah. on a deeper level than just on the mm. during exhibition duration. And the Kias... The Kias piece, could you just tell us a little bit more about it? Was that made collaboratively with... Refugee, yeah, it was. Uh, I it, it, I think it was made with, with refugee groups also in in, mm. in the UK. And the 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 bags is a, is a reference to the fact that uh, you know when when uh, refugees are, are are escaping, you know they they quite often choose not to carry very uh, kind of visible luggage, but also to be more, uh, you right. know, not to be noticed. They often move with with plastic bags mm. and so on. And then it's about the histories and experiences of mm. uh, of. Uh, uh, migration of, of these uh, uh, difficult journeys that people mm. have had. Okay, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think we're going to just move on now to uh, to Matthew Bowman. Um, Matthew, you've reviewed uh, the Corey Archangel exhibition at First Sight uh, in Colchester, where you also teach, I believe. Um, yes, that's right. Yes. Um, so... Yeah, maybe you could just uh, tell us a little bit about this show. And I think one of the first questions you ask in your article is like, how does it feel it being in this kind of gallery in Colchester? Uh, this like, is Corey Archangel's like a US internet artist. So it's quite a kind of incongruent, but perhaps seemingly incongruent combination of so, yeah, maybe you could just tell us about the exhibition and the questions you ask. Yeah, sure. So, as you say, Corey Archangel is an American artist and um, and I'm kind of interested in very much kind of how does his work kind of play out in kind of Colchester, which has a kind of specific context to it. Um, and one of the kind of things I'm very much interested in there is kind of Archangel's kind of work, and it's kind of what I talk about in the review, often plays around notions of standardisation, um, homogenisation. And so in it being in Colchester, in a way, one of the things I've kind of come to conclusion is it doesn't actually matter where it is, that actually Colchester is not all that different per se from Chelmsford or from Southend or into London, Rochester, Dover, I've kind of worked my way kind of north to south in kind of, kind of that kind of way. You still have the sort of same kind of coffee shops the same kind of brand names kind of here and there, the same kind of uh, consumer commercial kind of activities. It, 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 feels, it feels almost like he's, he's kind of creating like a web page within this space that, in which he could be anywhere. It's so He's using like a lot of um, symbols of kind of standardization, like you say, infiltration, like... Um, well, actually, maybe just before we, yeah, mm. infiltration is distinct from standardization because you talk about the, the the use of sound and the drum machine piece from the the Roland nine hundred nine, um, which then kind of bleeds into every piece that you see in the work. 
maybe just like talk about infiltration as distinct from standardization yeah yeah sure um so one of the first things you see when you go into the exhibition um it's, it's divided into four different spaces in effect but but as soon as you walk into the exhibition what you hear is this kind of recurring drum beat that's coming from the rolling drum machine it kind of quite literally kind of filters absolutely everywhere through the exhibition space I mean, it takes you kind of a few minutes before you actually get to the source of that sound. Um, so it becomes kind of the backdrop for absolutely everything in the exhibition, but also kind of in some ways um, kind of spaces kind of adjacent to the exhibition as well. And, um, and then as you go into what's kind of in effect kind of the second space of the exhibition, you see immediately in front of you uh, a video of Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock in 1969 playing the Star Spangled Banner. And um, you can hear a kind of, kind of an auto, auto-tuned version of, of that performance, mm. but you also got the drum beat behind that. And perhaps the kind of immediate impression is, this is one kind of work, this is all going together. But then you kind of can read kind of blurb, or you can read a bit into Archangel, and you kind of realise, well, the Jimi Hendrix video that Archangel's adapted is... Um, 2007 um, the, the drum machine uh, the RSK is actually produced seven years later mm. and it started to kind of come into dialogue with one another and it almost kind of works seamlessly mm. and that becomes a really interesting effect and I think a really interesting kind of parable for everything else that happens in exhibition yeah so you, you draw you draw a kind of parallel between that strategy as an art, that strategy employs as an artist of infiltration and Particularly with the the use of the nine nine, which would have been so pervasive in like eighties music, <laughs> like you recognise that sound, um, and also the use of auto tune, which is kind of so pervasive like now in pop music. Um, but you 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 carry that strategy through into the kind of curatorial strategy, or into into the strategy of using like really homogenous signals to kind of create like this kind of. I don't know. It almost feels like I haven't managed to see the show, but it almost feels like this kind of hollowed out experience in a way, like. Like it, like you say, it could almost be anywhere, um, and those two things are related. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think it's kind of, I went back the other day and kind of thinking back on the kind of revisiting the exhibition. Um, so, in some, the main space of the exhibition is virtually a, a black box. Um, so, kind of window has been blocked up. Um, there's kind of very, very little kind of electric light in the space. No kind of daylight coming in. And that too has this kind of isolation effect. It kind of removes you from the kind of the here and now of Colchester, and into the every here and every now of consumerism, so to mm. speak. And, and so that kind of de-identification of place, I think, becomes absolutely crucial to what the exhibition is doing overall. And that's kind of part of the standardisation that you start to see kind of throughout the exhibition. Mm. Yeah, and it certainly feels like um, that de-identification of places to do with coming coming from kind of like an internet art um, perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, you then you then talk about the works that address like themes of war um, and the way he subverts. I can't uh, the name of the work. Um, Oh, it's just uh, like IKEA tables. Oh no, or, the um, no. I was thinking the, oh, the, yeah. the Soviet. 
Um, Island MiG-29. Yeah, in which he, he hacks a, a game cartridge so that you're controlling... Am I right in saying you're controlling a... A, uh, a Soviet plane instead of a US plane. Or? Uh, you, you don't control it. What it is, it was, uh, it was an, an illegal Nintendo game that was produced. And where kind of most kind of, you know, kind of console games in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, things like kind of Afterburner, um, it's kind of very much put you in the kind of the F-14 Tomcat. You're basically mm. Tom Cruise in most computer games. Mm. It's Top Gun and all these kind of things. Um this illegal Nintendo game puts you in a MiG-29 kind of Soviet jet. But what becomes quite funny about it is that he's kind of hacked in such a way that it's kind of split onto four screens. The first screen just simply shows the jet. And it's flying, but it's not flying anywhere. It's kind of like a, some kind of ab- update of Xeno's paradox of kind of the arrow that does not move. The jet's kind of condemned to fly for all infinity at high speed and not move an inch. Mm. And then the other three screens are um, just clouds. From Super Mario. Right? Yeah. yeah. And that kind of, kind of frozen moment, or not quite frozen moment, because there's still kind of movement happening within that. Um, but you kind of have nonetheless kind of this kind of fighter jet designed to destroy, wreck mass havoc and so on and so forth, is now unable to do that. It's simply flying on the same spot for all eternity. Mm. And that becomes one of the kind of themes you can also find for the exhibition is kind of a, almost kind of a way of a freezing kind of military discourse, so to speak. Mm. Um, which has its own kind of critical value in a sense. But then as you kind of go through, you start to realise that, um, that the military kind of discourse or kind of the military kind of forms themselves get frozen, but then they become transfigured often into consumer forms after that. And mm. so it becomes a very kind of tricky position for kind of Archangel's work to kind of kind of walk through. So yeah, this is, this is um, like an important question in the review, maybe is again about kind of um, question of assimilation, like do, through, well, you use the word defanged, it's a great word, like through the kind of defanging of these forms, are you then, yeah, are you then getting, are you then getting submerged into maybe cultural commodification again, like the works, the, maybe you could describe them, the, the, the IKEA table works. Mm-hmm. So they're yeah. yeah. So, so this is a, a set of um, IKEA kind of um, lemon tables, which have all been kind of put up ag- against. Uh, well, they've basically been hung from the wall um, and sort of treated as kind of photographs or paintings. And in fact, what they have kind of printed on the surface of the tables are kind of forms of kind of sportswear clothing mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, some of which has been adapted from military forms of camouflage and other kind of military sources. And again, that becomes... Oh, so the sportswear is, is, is like extrapolated, the designs are kind of extrapolated from military. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Any kind of, kind of IKEA culture, mm. um, kind of it's part of that too. And so from army to consumerism, um, well, I can sort of playfully refer to as kind of the military consumer complex is kind of what's kind of yeah. Archangel seems to be kind of playing in. Yeah. And you you talk about bleakness at the end, like um, the, perhaps the bleakness of trying to articulate that you trying to articulate that it's you're finding it difficult to establish a critical position 
and the bleakness of of like I guess Archangels, the way he articulates that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so on the one hand, you want to say, great critique of war. Mm. Um, it's kind of sort of built into the exhibition and kind of kind of built into the practice. But then kind of Archangel kind of follows that cre- critique, as I was saying, to the war or military becoming uh, a kind of foundation for consumer-based forms. And then you kind of kind of caught in this double bind. Um, between consumerism on the one hand and militarism on the other hand. And Archangel doesn't, I don't think he really kind of resolves that, but I don't think he's trying to resolve that. Mm. I think it's almost kind of quite diagnostic in that respect. Mm. And, it's, and maybe the kind of question for us would be, how do we go beyond that? Can we go beyond that? And perhaps these are, you know, they're kind of, sort of classic Frankfurt School kind of questions. They're kind of, kind of things that sort of Adorno would kind of ask about standardisation in society, like kind of homogenisation, mm. and what kind of critical agency does that leave on a part of kind of subjects kind of within that? If we too become complicit or part and parcel of that standardisation, then do we have any agency left? Do we have any critical perspective left? Mm. And that's a dark, depressing, slightly <laughs> scary um, thought. Bleak, um, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, yeah. Just finally, I, I wanted to ask about like the uh, this exhibition in the broader context of First Sight and their curatorial program because you're working in Colchester. First Sight's the major, well, uh, as well as the Minories, the only like they're the only two contemporary art galleries in Colchester. Is that correct? Um, there's another one as well, which is based at University of Essex called mm. Art Exchange, and okay. that's kind of a really interesting space too. Um, but but Colchester is kind of it's not quite slap ban in the middle of East Anglia, mm. um, but it's it's kind of in many ways kind of the arts hub of East Anglia to a certain extent. So going southwards, kind of next nearest place would be Focal Point Gallery in Chef mm. um, in South End. Sorry, um, Alan. Kind of northwards, um, your next kind of major space would be kind of East Gallery. In, in Norwich and also in the Sainsbury Centre. So it's kind of sort of nicely in between the two things. And um, I kind of, so one of the things about culture, so it's kind of, kind of great space for contemporary art practice. Um, um, but at the same time, um, it's kind of, sort of struggled for a little bit for the last few years, but now it seems to be kind of picking up steam again. Yeah, because kind of, I, I know there was a lot of, um, well, there was a bit of controversy about First Sight and perhaps its programme. Um, not being well, there, well, there was a Tory minister who was concerned. Should we say that, that the program wasn't um, wasn't relevant to an Essex audience, or wasn't um, was a bit? I think the, he used like arty, you know, he's too arty. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, he yeah. said, um, and like this feel, and the program at first sight has felt a little bit like it's well, they've they've kind of responded to that, and I think some of the maybe criticality has been taken away, but this feels like a return maybe to something which can be a little bit more bleak and can be a little bit more introspective and like is that is that fair kind of yeah. yes i think so yeah. so one of the things about colchester is is a garrison town it's where the parachute regiment are based and so and um, this exhibition and a couple of exhibitions ago and um, the rax media collective both engage in many ways in that kind of military connotations of colchester itself mm. and in many ways it's not kind of 
alienating to people kind of in the army. It's kind of critical of war rather than soldiers per se. Mm. And maybe there's a whole other kind of story kind of there behind that. Um, but it's a kind of ongoing sense of trying to kind of rebuild uh, connections with the kind of local mm. kind of audience. Because culture so used to be in the mini space. Okay. Okay, I think that's all we've got time for. But um, thank you so much, Tom. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> and uh, thank you, Matthew. Thank you very much. And thank you, uh, Maya and Ruben. Thank, thank you. Um, cool, that's all we've got time for. <laughs>